This morning we'll be looking at the ninth commandment from Exodus chapter 20. That's found in Exodus 20, verse 16. Made it through eight commandments, Lord willing, at the end of uh, this hour, we'll make it through nine and uh, wrap up soon with the tenth. The ninth commandment simply says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I'd also like to read to you from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. After the Apostle Paul has described in wonderful detail the riches of blessings that are given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ through his work on the cross, and then describing what has happened to us in being brought together as one body in the church, he then goes to describe the nature of the life that we ought to live because of what Christ has done for us, the nature of the life we can live because of what the Spirit does in us. And so Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Goes on in verse 29 and says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time as we consider his word. Father, we do bow ourselves before you in our hearts to ask that we would be and you would make us to be humble before your word. Whatever falsehood remains in us, would you be pleased to bring that to the surface even as we consider these verses? that we might repent of them and you might do a good work in us to put truth in our hearts. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, the ninth commandment is a commandment not to bear false witness against your neighbor. It's often summarized simply as, you shall not lie. That's kind of the, the common understanding and meaning of it is simply you shall not lie. And if we leave it at that, you should say, okay, well, you know, every kindergartner knows that you shouldn't lie. Done. End of story. And lying is so prevalent that we hardly need any examples. Uh, it's kind of fun occasionally to, and more than fun, it's instructive to see um, an evangelist doing his work and uh, bringing the gospel to people around the world. There's one evangelist I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Uh, His name is Ray Comfort, and he has plenty of videos on YouTube. You can check them out. But one of his techniques in his evangelism is to have the people 
that he speaks with be confronted with God's standard of righteousness. And so he brings them to the Ten Commandments and asks them effectively, have you kept these? And the first question that he often asks them is, have you ever lied? And the person who is asked that is almost inevitably kind of taken aback by the simplicity of the question and then says, of course I have, too many times to count. Almost like it's a non-issue because everybody has lied. And that's usually what they say, well, Everybody has done it. And they think because everybody has done it, it's almost no big deal. Lying comes almost naturally to us from the start. There's another video that's out there. It's probably one of the first uh, viral videos that I ever saw. It was one of this probably two-year-old child who was confronted by his mother asking him this question, Johnny, did you eat the sprinkles? And Johnny says, I didn't eat the sprinkles. And on the video, you see there are sprinkles lining this child's mouth. And the mother walks him over to the counter and says, Johnny, did you eat the sprinkles? No, I didn't eat the sprinkles. Then Johnny, why are there sprinkles all over the counter? There are no sprinkles on the counter, mommy. And he goes on and lies this lie to mask the reality that he had eaten the sprinkles. And from the very start, we are liars. Last week we saw from the very start we're thieves, and so we're not off to a good start at all. But deceitfulness comes into our life in both small and big ways. I'm sure as we talk about this, you would not be pressed to think of ways that you yourself have lied Stretched the truth in both small and big ways. Make small lies to make ourselves look better. We make big lies sometimes to harm other people. And if we get caught, we could go to jail. Lies abound. Some lies are so frivolous and so pointless as to be about how big the fish was that we caught. Lies extend into that realm as well. Of course, this commandment about bearing false witness against your neighbor comes in the context of the Ten Commandments. The first four of these commandments really emphasize what our relationship to God is to be like. He demands preeminence in our life. The priority of all relationships is to be devoted to Him We're to remember, we're to have no gods before him. We are to not make a graven image, not to take the name of the Lord in vain, and we're to keep the Sabbath. The final six of the commandments really now move to the horizontal level of our relationship with others, and it extends to our relationship with our parents. We are to honor them. goes on to, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. And each one of these is profoundly significant for how we conduct ourselves in relationship to each other. And each one of these, in a sense, extends to us a commandment that sets the bar at the most extreme point. For example, when it is commanded, you shall not murder, it is not saying that if you don't murder but you are violent towards somebody else as long as you don't take their life, you're okay. 
It's just issuing to us the most extreme scenario that we need to know about, but really there are a cascading other events that we need to be restricted from within that category. So not only do we not murder, but also we don't commit any kind of violent crimes about, against any other. Not only do we not do that, but we also must not even hate somebody, Jesus says. Adultery is forbidden because it attacks God's good design of marriage. And it shows that, the, in a sense, the greatest sexual crime that is committed is the one that devastates a marriage. But that is not to say that there are no other sexual misconducts out there. There are plenty And those are forbidden as well, but the Ten Commandments shows, in a sense, the most serious. Theft is forbidden because God values diligence and generosity. It is not to say that if you don't steal, you've really abided by the heart of that commandment. Really, we don't abide by it until we give ourselves to diligent labor and generosity that is not looking towards personal gain, but towards the good of others. So now as we come to this ninth commandment, which tells us not to bear false witness against your neighbor, although this is most immediately applicable to a court of law, that's where this commandment is really addressed it to, we must not think that it is exclusively held in those confines of a judicial setting. We have to realize that this really does extend to the realm of personal encounters that we have with others and small fibs and big fibs and everything in between. But still, we want to give ourselves to understanding the commandment as it is written, which is primarily forbidding perjury. Perjury has been defined by the voluntary violation of an oath or vow, either by swearing to what is untrue or by omission to do what has been promised under oath. It's that moment when you have sworn before a court of law or before witnesses saying, what I say is true, and as a matter of fact, you're lying. And usually you're lying for the great harm of somebody else in those moments. And so this commandment is clearly talking about that, but it does extend, and I want to show you that it does extend to other kinds of lies, Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, is the prophet Hosea speaking to Israel about really the plethora of uh, sins that they have as a nation and what the consequences of those sins will be. And as he does this, he very much stays close to the Ten Commandments, and you'll hear it as I read it in a moment, but you also hear that he swaps out, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor for the word just lying. So Hosea says in chapter 4, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. See there that the prophet Hosea identifies it's not just breaking your oath, it's just lying as well that's forbidden by this commandment. 
And when we discuss the issue of lying, several scenarios immediately rise up in our minds. We think of those small, so-called white lies that pervade our society. And we also might think, okay, if we're not to lie, must that then entail that we're always completely and totally honest in everything? And if you take that to an extreme, you could find yourself in a situation where you're, for example, at a dinner and you're asked by the host, would you like another slice of this delicious chocolate cake? And you answer, no, thank you. When in your heart, you would love another slice of that chocolate cake. Are you lying? Or are you just kind of following some social protocols that you really shouldn't have a second piece of cake, and you're also following your diet that says you really shouldn't have a second piece of cake? And in one sense, you're exerting self-control, which is true, and saying no thank you. And so in that case, you don't have to explain to your host, I would love that piece of cake. It's the most delicious piece of cake I've ever had in my life. But really, if I eat it, I'm just going to get fat, and I don't want to do that. And so I can't eat it right now. I'd really love to, but I can't, and so I won't. It just gets confusing. So don't take this to that extreme. But at the same time, we realize that often we issue small lies just to make things more convenient for us or to make ourselves look better, or because we just want to poke another person a little bit and make them look a little bit worse than they are. So we might lie about some sort of argument that we got into with somebody, and we exaggerate their sin a little bit, and we minimize our sin a little bit. And in doing so, we really deceive the person we're talking to because we make the other person look like a criminal and us look like a saint. Well, that's Deceit. It's lying. And certainly we are not enabled to do that. And so this commandment and the way that we execute not lying requires wisdom, requires a heart of truth and an attitude of love, an attitude of selflessness that is not focused on personal gain. Another issue that often comes up when this idea of lying comes about is, well, what about lying in cases of necessity or in dire circumstances? What about that scenario where there were people during World War II who were hiding Jews from the Nazis and the secret police comes to the door and asks, are you hiding anybody? What should you do? There are several instances in Scripture where it seems like deception in moments of dire necessity for the sake of preserving life, well, it happens. You think of the Hebrew midwives who deceive Pharaoh about these children that are being born to the Israelites, and they preserve life, and God commends what they do in preserving life. Or you think about Rahab who is um, deceiving the guards who come to inquire about the Israelite spies. And I don't have a robust answer to this question right now. This certainly deserves some ethical consideration. And my really only charge in that moment would be to suggest to beg God for wisdom about the right thing to do and how to honor Him in those moments. If you ever find yourself in truly 
a position of desired necessity where deception is going to lead to the preservation of life. Beg God for wisdom in that moment. I think there's more to say about that, but I simply bring it up because I know that's a question. But it's not a question that's necessarily addressed by this text. This text is addressing something more fundamental about deception. Not really going to the extremes of the scenarios that you can think of. It's rather dealing with a a heart that is bent on deception that leads to the harm of other people. That's what this commandment is about. So I'm sorry that I brought that up and I don't give you an answer to it. But I just ask if you would put that to the side for now so that we can think about where this commandment really leads us. And so for the remainder of our time, I want us to spend these moments thinking about kind of two categories. One would be the world of truth and lies in which we live. Just the fact that we, we inhabit a world where there is truth, and yet lies have so pervaded into our world that it's commonplace. And then second, I want you to see that we are called to a life of truth. So first, let's look at this world of truth and lies that we live in. And to begin this, we have to understand that in the beginning, there was only truth. Because in the beginning, before anything was made, there was only God. And God is truth. Deuteronomy 32.4 once again says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness, or as some translations put it, a God of truth and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. His very purity excludes deception and lies. And rather in God himself is such purity that when he speaks, his words are real, completely, and without any deceit in them. And because he is so true, he can be called faithful because he always follows through on his word. God always, in every moment, in what he says, corresponds to reality. And he will always do what he says. Always. Numbers twenty-three nineteen, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man, that he should change his mind? Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Isn't that wonderful that our God is not like us, who are fickle and change our minds, and our words can't always be trusted, and yet God, when he speaks, he speaks truth, and when he makes a decision, he stays with it. He's not like us. Titus chapter 1. Verses 1 through 3 begins that epistle this way. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God's truthfulness begins before the ages, and that's when he makes promises 
that are based on his character who never lies. And really the only hope then for us in this world is to have a God who never lies because he has promised to us eternal life. And only, the only hope that we have for any kind of true knowledge, and it, by the way, if you have not come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're searching for truth, you're really searching for reality, you're searching for what's real, you're searching for what's right, any other kind of worldview becomes very quickly bankrupt because it doesn't have a source of objective truth like the God of the Bible. He alone was there in the beginning, completely true, living in perfect harmony, Father, Son, and Spirit. And from his word, he creates the whole world, his word which is so true and so powerful that he can create all things. And we live in that world that he has made, and he offers us an opportunity to know him and to know what is true. And so the dependence of us knowing truth depends really on a God who never lies. God has made it his ambition through the proclamation of the gospel for the saints to know this truth. So God is the God of truth. He has revealed what is true, and truth would not exist without him. His whole nature is true. This is, in a sense, what it means when God gives himself that name in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses asks, who shall I say has sent me? And God's response is that mind-boggling response, I am who I am, or I will be what I will be, which basically means he is always and completely true to himself. James calls him, the one in whom there is no shifting shadow of change. He is no hypocrite. God does not make himself look one way, but in reality he is another. There is no deception in him. He is who he is. This is the foundation of all truth. If you don't have all this, you always have a shifting definition of what's true. You need something fixed. You need a fixed point of reference to know that which is absolutely true. And God is that fixed point. He is who he is. Jesus is so connected with the truth that he himself can declare in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. His words and his person are so secure, so steady, so reliable And so corresponding to the reality of who God is that time and time again in the Gospels, Jesus, when he speaks, precedes what he says with this, truly, truly, I say to you. That's how truthful he is. None of us speak that way. We don't precede what we say usually with with saying truly, truly, I say to you, and if we do, usually if we say, I swear to you, or verily, verily, I say to you, you know the person's lying. But Jesus, he says that because his words are so true, he prefaces statements with that, that we might know the truthfulness of what he's saying. And yet, in God being true, he is also full of love. 
Have you ever met the kind of person who is so blunt that they say the truth, but they just say it in a way that feels like you got slapped across the face? They answer the question, how do I look? (laughs) I don't need to answer it for you because you know how they answer it. Maybe it's true. What they say is true. But there's just a hardness to it, a bluntness to it. And God certainly speaks truth that many times is not savory to us. We don't like it. That doesn't mean that he doesn't say it in love. And so God, indeed, is the God of all truth. But he's also the God who is described in John, in 1 John, as the God who is love. And so God's virtue of his truthfulness is matched by the virtue of his love. And when God speaks truth, he speaks truth lovingly. That means with affection, with care, with concern, with compassion. Because the truth is good and necessary, he cares for us not to live in the darkness but in the light. And when God gives us the truth, it is the means by which he delivers us from the darkness and brings us into the light. It's a very act of love in him telling us the truth, but it is also loving in the way that he does it. So not only is it loving that God tells us the truth, it's also truth told lovingly. Read the Gospels. And again, Jesus doesn't hold back, but he cares for those for whom he speaks And he speaks wisely. He speaks as a shepherd that cares for the flock that he is caring for. So read the Gospels and see how wisely, how tenderly Jesus shepherds his flock. How he knows what they need to hear. How he knows how to present it to them in a way that they can understand. At times they don't understand because their minds are still blinded by sin. But he leads them. He's patient with them. And he's kind to them. All the attributes of love. And he rejoices in the truth. Notice it once again in the book of Titus chapter 1, which I've already referred to, when Paul says that he's an apostle for the sake of God's elect in verse 1, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. The reason why God wants us to know the truth through apostolic preaching and service is in hope of eternal life. God wants us to know the truth that we might have eternal life. Life. I can think of nothing more loving than that. And the promise of the God who never lies is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which is given in hope of eternal life. And eternal life, by the way, as described in John 17, 3, is this, as Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. While there is the true God who speaks with love for the sake of us knowing him, which is eternal life, we know that we live in a world that is inhabited not just by that truth and not just by that love, but by 
lies, and hatred. There is an enemy of God's people. There is an accuser of the brethren, one who breathes out lies and is the father of lies. John chapter 8, verse 44, has Jesus speaking to some Jewish people who were at the moment superficially kind of accepting what Jesus was saying, but there was no real faith in them. And as a matter of fact, they were becoming kind of antagonistic to what he was saying. And Jesus speaks to them in John 8, 44. And this is one of those moments he doesn't hold back because in this case, he has to let them know that they are deceived. And he says in John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There is indeed a real enemy. He is Satan. He is the one who has been lying and murdering from the beginning. And there are many who follow in his ways who've caught hold of the lie, continue in his footsteps to such a degree that they could be described, as Jesus describes his audience as being of your father, the devil. We all likely know the story of the first appearance of Satan in Scripture in Genesis chapter 3 when he comes into the Garden of Eden and deceives Eve in Genesis 3, 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then it goes on in chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you hear those lies? Those wicked, awful, God-distorting lies, soul-deceiving lies, the lie that God is not really good, God's withholding from you. God hasn't really said that, has he? And just the flat-out lie, no, that's not true, what God said. This one lie has plunged humanity through the acceptance of that lie into darkness. In Romans chapter 1, verse 25, Paul describes humanity as they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17 talks about how those who are not of God and have not come to saving faith are still in the futility of their minds and how they are darkened in their understanding and there's ignorance in them due to their hardness of heart. We've been given over to a lie that we believe God is not good or God is not real, 
or God's word is not true, or God has not said, and we've exchanged the truth about who God really is and his truthfulness and his goodness and his love and his might and his power, and we've exchanged it for a lie that God is not good, that we are good. What a deception. And so in that exchange, we have become like Satan, the deceiver, darkened in our understanding, not living in the light, believing a lie about God. And then in this realm of lies in which we live that distorts the most essential and important truths about the world that we live in, from that deception that really makes us feel like we are the good ones and God is the bad one and we have right to do whatever we want and we become the king of our own domain and the one who decrees what's right and wrong, what's true and false, out of that kind of life, living a life under the great lie, we now become liars. That is manifest in the simple lie to one another of the fish I caught was this big. Why do we do that? Because we want to make ourselves look good or demean another person. And when we get into an argument and we say, that person was worse than they really were and I was better than I really am, what are we doing? We're showing we're the king of our own world. We've rejected the truth about God, exchange it for a truth about us or a lie about us, rather. We're darkening our understanding not living in the light, we become like the ultimate deceiver. There's a wonderful hymn, many of you know, written by Martin Luther. It's kind of the battle cry of the Reformation. A mighty fortress is our God. And one of the stanzas is a stanza about Satan, we don't often sing about Satan. Actually, before the throne of God above, which we're just saying, saying, did refer to him. And it's appropriate to refer to how God overcomes the prince of darkness. This line in A Mighty Fortress is Our God says this about Satan. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. I read an article a few years ago that asked a really interesting question of, what's the little word that Martin Luther was referring to when he wrote that hymn? I asked a, a provocative question. I didn't know the answer to it. And this uh, author brought out that it's not the common answers that you would think, that Satan, your end is coming, or Jesus is better. That wasn't the answer that Martin Luther had in mind. The little word that Martin Luther had in mind that would fell Satan, that would just bring him down, is this one word, liar. Because when you acknowledge that Satan, above all, is a liar... What power does he have any longer? We are called 
as people who belong to Christ, if indeed you belong to Christ, to be people of the truth. And so this is the, really the second point we need to consider. Yeah, we live in a world, truth that is founded in God, lies that have been implemented through Satan, and that we imbibe and then we distribute. But really, we're called to life in the truth. When Israel was given the ninth commandment, it was to show that the ones who were redeemed by God's power and grace from slavery and Egypt were to become a society that was marked by truthfulness. They were not to be people of lies. They left Egypt where lies prevailed, where Satan had, it seemed like, free reign with all the false religion, all the false gods that led to tyrannical despots who had no love for their neighbor. But Israel was to be different. And so they're given this ninth commandment along with the others that was to show that they were loved their God and to love their neighbor as themselves. And when they are given this commandment not to bear false witness, they're given this because not only does lying betray the fundamental character of the God to whom they belong, but it also brings damage on their neighbor. When a society is marked by lies, it cannot function as it ought. I just found this out as I was studying for this, that in the White House, there is a, a mantle that is, has a quote from John Adams that says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, may all who live in this house be men of wisdom and truth. <laughs> it's just almost laughable, isn't it? When a society is not founded on truth, of course it's going to decay. Israel was to be a place where truth was held in high regard in a big way in the judicial system and personally in personal relationships. And this ninth commandment is again addressed to kind of the the worst of the worst kind of lies that you can tell in a society. And that happened and would happen in the in the realm of the judicial system. The meaning of the ninth commandment is stated that you're not to lie under oath, really in the, in the scenario where there's a court case going on. A justice system that is supposed to be there to free the innocent and protect the innocent and punish the guilty. It cannot do that if it gets wrong who is innocent and who is guilty. Perhaps one of the worst things that can happen personally to someone, is to be punished for a crime they did not commit. That may be one of the least loving things you could do to a person is to be instrumental in the punishment of somebody for a crime they did not commit. And so this commandment says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And of course the question comes up, well, who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus has a great story about that that you should read sometime in Luke chapter 10. And the basic answer to the question given by Jesus, who is your neighbor, is the answer that Jesus gives is prove yourself to be a good neighbor. That's really the answer. Prove yourself 
to be a good neighbor to whoever you have dealings with. Israel's justice system was simple in a sense. We have lots of forensic evidence that we can get into, fingerprints and ballistics and security cameras and all that kind of stuff, but Israel's justice system was really bent on maintaining the integrity of marriage, of life, and of property. And it was held up by the presence of reliable witnesses. There are several examples of this. You can see Ruth chapter 4 for an example. I won't get into that now. But Deuteronomy chapter 16 describes the way the justice system was to work. Deuteronomy 16 verse 18 says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of of the righteous. Justice, and only justice, you shall follow. It goes on that when a case was tried, it would largely depend on eyewitness testimony. And in Deuteronomy chapter 19, it describes the consequences for malicious witness and also the requirement to have more than one witness. So Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. It goes on to describe what would happen to a malicious witness or a false witness. Several examples of false witnesses in the Bible. Maybe one of the most striking is found in 1 Kings chapter 21. When King Ahab gets upset that he can't take his neighbor Naboth's vineyard to make his own private garden, and he pouts on his bed. His wife Jezebel says, why are you crying? Let's do something about this. She rounds up some false witnesses, arranges a feast, puts Naboth, the neighbor of Ahab, at the head of the table, has the false witnesses come and accuse Naboth of something he didn't do. They have a hasty trial, and they put Naboth to dead so Ahab can grow his carrots. And you see how pernicious a lie in court can be because it took an innocent man's life. And so God's commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbors to be a protection against the people of Israel from abusing justice. Proverbs 14.5, a faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. Of course, if you ever find yourself under oath, don't lie. You know that. But if we were to scale this down to kind of the the world that we live in on a day-to-day basis, I hope the application is obvious. You need to make sure that the language that you use, what you are communicating to other people, accurately and necessarily represents the person that you are speaking about well and rightly. We are very free with our words at times. And we can say something, maybe even with good intention, 
Oh, did you know so-and-so is really struggling in their marriage right now? And you give no details because you're going to be careful about that. But in doing so, you've put something in somebody else's mind that really has no business knowing about what's going on in this person's life. And now when that person sees that person, all this person is going to think about is, that person's struggling in their marriage. You know, I always thought that person was kind of a shrew. And now you begin to lie about them in your own mind. Gossip is so dangerous, especially in a church. It catches on like wildfire. And I exhort you, you be careful with what you say about other people in this church. And you be careful about the prayer requests that you share with other people so that you represent other people well, and you make sure that you aren't sharing business that other people have no business knowing about. We need to maintain the reputation of people in our church. Not malign them, not slander them. I don't have anything in particular in mind. It's just I think we all know the danger of an ill-spoken word. So be careful, please, with what you say, and how you say it. Again, Martin Luther, paraphrase him, he says, a reputation is something quickly stolen, but not quickly returned. We are to be people of the truth. We are to live a life of truth. The truth in love, is such an important characteristic in the church because we are not a people redeemed from slavery in Egypt, but we are redeemed from slavery to sin and death and falsehood. We are to be truthful people. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll close with this, and I invite you to turn there just to make sure you see it yourselves. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. He goes on, again in verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, that is to say something that has fundamentally happened to you because you have come to faith in Christ and the big lie that we once believed has now been exchanged for the truth about God. And we now know what is true and right. And because we've put away that basic falsehood, now let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. In 1 Timothy Chapter 3, Paul calls the church the pillar and buttress of the truth. 
we have been entrusted with the truth about God, the truth about eternal life, the truth about heaven, the truth about hell, the truth about forgiveness. We know personally the God of truth. We know what he is like and have experienced the goodness of his truth given to us in love. How incongruous would it be then if we who are to be a pillar and buttress of the truth are then the kind of people that tell lies about the kind of fish that we caught? Or about the argument that we had? Or about what's going on in somebody else's life? We are to be people of the truth because we have been rescued by that truth. So represent to the world that you are a person who tells the truth in love. Let's pray. Father, the, the quantity of lies that have been told by all of us in this room would be so staggering if they were ever listed out. It would probably make us sick. And Father, for every one of those lies, for those who are in Christ, all of them have been paid by his blood. We thank you that you have spared us the wrath that we rightly deserve because of the grace of our Lord. Father, thank you that you've opened our eyes to the truth about Christ. And I pray that you would help us to be people who speak the truth in love. Help us to be truthful people. Lord, this week when we're tempted to tell small lies or big lies, when we're tempted to gossip about somebody, help us, Father, to be careful. Help us to be wise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.